Welcome everyone to One Life Community Church. Uh, my name is Rich, and I'm one of the co-lead pastors here, and um, I just want you to know it is a privilege to be here with you. Thank you for carving out a time on your Sunday morning. The majority of our city does not wake up to come and worship, and so we count it a privilege that you would choose to do that with us. As we begin in your bulletin, there's a little half sheet of paper. It says Gospel of Luke on it, and it's there for you. It's great for notes, um, jotting down questions, verses. If you just need to doodle, if you will, just to stay attentive, that's good too. Uh, make sure you know it's there. We are in week 11 of a sermon series we are doing in the Gospel of Luke. So far, we've been journeying with Jesus from Galilee to village to village, now heading straight to Jerusalem. And as we have seen, the word is out on him. People are talking, his influence is spreading. And from village to village, we're seeing him over and over again perform these miracles, these healings. He is constantly confronting and challenging the religious authorities. And over and over again, he's literally obliterating expectations with his teachings, challenging everyone um, how they think and how they go about living their day-to-day -day life. And that's exactly what we hope will happen every time we gather, as we look at the scriptures that we will focus on this person, Jesus, this one life, the, the key to our name and our vision, that we would look to his example and it would help us know how to live out our life in our day-to-day. -day. We also learn and see what it looks like to bring the kingdom of God into action into our community, which is the second part of our name and our vision, that this kingdom of God is to be shared. It's not just for us. That we need to reach out. And we also see, as we look at the disciples, what it means to be the church, nothing more, nothing less, which is the third part of our name and our vision. That is, we look at these disciples and we see how often they're confused, and scared, and selfish, and unexpected, and unqualified even. It helps us get a little bit of a sense that they're just like us when we're learning. Um, and that's actually really good news. We don't have it all together. And we see over and over again the story of God in Jesus' teaching is about God who will go to every means possible in order to reconcile all things and make all things new. Now, that's good news for me. I've had a weird week this week, and I feel like I've been hitting a little bit of a midlife crisis. I don't know what it is. Um, I think I have a couple ideas. I, so recently I got sick. Cold system symptoms went away. And uh, it stays in my lungs. I'm going to try not to cough into this microphone. But the doctor didn't just give me one, but two inhalers. If you want to feel old, get in prescribed inhalers. And didn't just say, oh, just use this for a week or two. Basically, they said, anytime you need an inhaler, you just go to your pharmacist and they will give you one. <laughs> and I don't even have asthma. They're just like, you just need that. You're old. If you're a bald person, if, if you're a bald person and you wake up with bedhead like I have in the last few days, there's a problem. I uh, haven't got my hair cut in some time. When you go to bed and you get on your phone and you start searching on Craigslist for vehicles made in 1967, because that's really what you want instead of your minivan, that's a sign. And then when you take your seven-year-old who is just celebrating his birthday today, to a giant trampoline place and some kid taunts you by calling you Gramps, uh, there's a problem, which I taught him a lesson. I'm just going to be honest. He's, he's fine. No one was hurt. But 23 years of youth ministry and dodgeball, I had to put him in his place. But again, 
It's a sign that you're getting old. And when you start feeling old, you start thinking about, man, I remember what it was like to be young, right? I, I remember when I could jump on a trampoline for more than 10 minutes and my knees didn't hurt uh, and those kinds of things. And, and today's scripture talks about children. Um, and uh, we'll see how we can kind of enter in with some assumptions and thoughts that come into mind, especially those of us who are not children uh, and what it makes us think. So today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Before we get there, though, I'm going to pray. Um, let's do that. Jesus, uh, it's good to be in your presence. It's good to worship you. It's good to, to just be able to come no matter what's going on. Give ourselves to you, uh, to hear from you, to be encouraged and challenged by you, and just to uh, draw near. So, Holy Spirit, as we breathe our very breath, remind us of your presence, of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you have your Bible, you can open it to Luke 18, verses 15 through 17. If not, um, it will be displayed on the wall behind me as well. It's pretty short and sweet. It starts with verse 15. It says this. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the children, little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Verse 17, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now whenever we look at scripture, we always want to get a sense of context, and this one starting with verse 15 doesn't give us a whole lot. It doesn't say where we are, who's with us, and that's when we have to go backwards a bit. Last week we learned that the scripture previous to this included a number of people. It had an audience of people generally from the community. It included the disciples. It included at least that we know some Pharisees and at least one tax collector. And so we know now that it's generally the same audience, and now we're seeing some new people, most likely women, bringing these babies and children to Jesus for him to touch. And it's important to note, too, with this story, that this story is not distinct to the Gospel of Luke. Um, the same story is found in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, um, and they generally all say the same thing and agree. Um, but Luke clearly makes two distinctions— that are very important for us to note. The first distinction is that Luke does not include language specifically showing Jesus' indignation towards the disciples for rebuking these people. It's present in the other two. Mark clearly and specifically states Jesus' great disappointment in them for this. And I think Luke does this on purpose. I think by leaving that part of the story out, the picture is of Jesus showing grace and mercy towards the disciples, which we'll get to a little more in a moment. The second distinction is a purposeful change in language that when we read it in English, we might not notice. All the other texts solely use the word children in their telling of the story. And we see the same word children used in our text as well. And that word translated children is the Greek word paideon. And paideon um, in the Greek means children, little ones, half-growns. Have you ever called your kids half-growns? Uh, and figuratively, it means immature and young. So the other two Gospels solely use the word paideon. Luke does something different in his telling of the story that I think is fascinating. 
In our very first verse, Jesus tells us that people are also, were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on. All the other Gospels use the word paideon, that the people were bringing children, half-growns, those who are immature and young, to Jesus. Luke uses a different word. The Greek word is the word brephos, which is translated babies or babes. And this word is, uh, literally means an unborn child, embryo, fetus, newborn, or infant. And I think this is a fascinating distinction that Luke makes, and I would argue that it's not just a distinction, but a clarification that Luke's trying to make that we'll get to in a moment. But before we do, I want to do a quick survey, kind of like last week. How many of you, when you start hearing stories like this about children, associate children as a symbol of innocence, um, humility, generally being sweet and pure. When we hear stories of kids in the Bible, how many of you raise your hands? That's what you kind of associate with. Okay, most of us are on the same page. The words of Jesus about little children are commonly interpreted as commending children um, in this kind of way. And we hear it, right? Having a childlike faith. Um, biblical texts talk about children all the time and have very positive thoughts about it. And this is especially true in our culture, Right? In first century Jewish culture, in the ancient world in general, though, people's attitudes to, towards children was very different. They often considered children to be worthless, even disposable. In the Greco-Roman world, it was perfectly legal to abandon a child one did not wish to raise. Can you imagine? Yes. Yeah, I tried it for a month or two, and yeah, it's not really my thing. You just abandon the child. That was legal. Children were also commonly seen as a source of family income, right? You have a farm, so have kids. They'll work that farm for you. So as a sign of security in your old age, someone to take care of you, pass on your name or your traditions. And for us in our culture, when we speak of kids, we kind of romanticize. They're so great. Look how cute they are. I post pictures of my kids and make them look really cute, and they're all great. And don't get me wrong, right? I have two kids, and I love them dearly. But it's very easy for us to communicate in a way where we kind of ignore the reality that they also can be obnoxious and spiteful. And some of us are sitting next to our own kids going, I don't know anything about this, right? If we have kids, it's not as hard for us to forget, but we tend to, to not communicate that side. But I think uh, if we think about even our culture right now, we use language that we're not even aware of that I think goes back all the way to first century ideas of kids. Think of this. Have you ever used this language? Quit acting like a child. Or, or why don't you act your age? Right? Or if you want to act like a child, I'm going to treat you like a child. Or just the classic simple, why don't you just grow up? Right? We use this language all the time. We don't really think about why would we even say that if kids are so amazing. And it goes all the way back, because we tend to think positively of it. And we're unaware, though, of the negative language that we might use in our mind around them. And the truth is, in the ancient world, children were excluded from most every activity, and there was very few institutions that defended them. In other words, the disciples and their actions in this story was considered absolutely acceptable to the people of the time. So rather than Jesus shaking his head at them in disappointment, 
like the other Gospels kind of lay out here, I believe Luke saw it more as a purposeful, powerful teaching moment about grace. I'm going to teach you something. Now, moving on. To be clear, this text is about young ones, right? We see the word children, a number of child, a ch- times, child, babies. And in the very basic understanding of the text, we should absolutely see a challenge to the disciples and ultimately us as his followers that we should never do anything, as the text says, to hinder children from coming to Jesus. It's not a hard read. And this is something we do at One Life every time we gather. Our church, I don't know if you know this, fun fact, has twice the national average of adult-to-kid ratio. We have a ridiculous amount of kids for the amount of adults that we have and a church our side. And this also represents our community. This neighborhood is full of young families with young kids. So it's no surprise that we put great effort to create a wonderful kids' life program to care for our kids and for our youth designed with this basic idea in mind. We don't want to do anything that's going to hinder our young ones from coming to Jesus. And over the last few years, we've been really blessed to see many of our kids getting baptized, many of our kids memorizing scripture, many of our kids learning how to pray and inviting their friends to church and different activities and and reading their Bibles. Like, that's awesome. You name it. We do this because we understand this general message of Jesus. And if you needed one more reason to get involved in serving in some form or fashion with our Kids Life program, this is a really good one. By you helping out, you are providing one more way to allow our kids the opportunity to come to Jesus. Now, the opposite or the negative way, when we don't have volunteers to care for our kids, we're not able to provide all that we can for them, and that's a problem. But you get it, right? There's, that's the baseline. That's the simple, quick read um, of the text. And there's a lot more here that I want to get to, particularly looking at this distinction that Luke is making with this word, infants, babies, this brephos term. Because the temptation is, the text would lead us to say that we should not just only care for our children and not hinder them from coming to Jesus, but that we need to be like them, right? If we want to enter the kingdom of God, we need to be like these children. And that's where the depth of this starts to come in. Often people teach about this with this idea in mind, and they start creating characteristics of what it means to be like a child. And this is where our ideas, our initial ideas of being pure and innocent and humble and sweet and all those kinds of things come into play. But you can kind of hopefully see the problem with this, right? If the main point of the story is for us to become innocent or to become as sweet or as humble or as pure as a little child in order to enter the kingdom of God, then we'll start to do what we were doing last week. We start doing something that the whole culture says is unimportant, disregardable. This is where this distinction from the children and these babies come in. The particular infants in this story were being brought to Jesus by others so that, quote, Jesus might touch them. Now, the passive role of these infants is being used. They were brought by others to Jesus, and the disciples tried to prevent it, 
And by Jesus, or by Luke changing Matthew and Mark's translation of that word children to infants, what we see is that Luke is clarifying, he's underscoring, he's highlighting and underlining and pointing to the reality that these infants are utterly vulnerable and incapable of doing anything on their own. And that is precisely to these that the kingdom of God belongs to. The kingdom does not belong to them or to us because like the Pharisees in the parable last week, they or we tithe and fast or because we go to church or because we pray a particular prayer, pray a certain amount of times or because we act like such and such child. The kingdom of God does not belong to those who are able to understand all of what it means and to put it all into practice. Rather, the kingdom of God belongs to them, to us, out of God's sheer, unmerited favor. And I hope that you hear this message is not just for children and for babies. If you look at verse 17, we see the word whoever is used. It implies that all must receive the kingdom of God as infants, as brephos, as those who are incapable of anything on their own and who are utterly vulnerable on their own. So the passage is for anyone who desires to receive the kingdom of God. Now, how we interpret this passage has much to do, again, with how we place ourselves into the text. Obviously, we'd like to place ourselves in the role of the little children, and that's always a nice goal. Again, but that's a trap like last week, because when we claim that our role is that of little children— we're coming dangerously close to the Pharisees in the parable we looked at last week, who are kind of putting on behaviors and looking down on those others who don't have the same thing, thinking it was about them. So perhaps we could do better by considering the possibility that we might be more like the disciples who tried to stop those who were bringing the little babies to Jesus, which I get is not exactly the ideal place to be right, in the story. Of all the places you could be, that's probably not the one. But I think this touches on a great temptation of the church and believers even today. Because just as we are tempted to boast about our capabilities, our religiousness, you name it like a Pharisee, in comparison to others that are less than us, we are also tempted to set rules and regulations and standards that effectively keep people away from church and away from meeting Jesus. Here's a fun fact. 2010, there was a major study done to determine that there was over 33,820 33, denominations within the category of Christianity worldwide. This includes independents, Protestants, marginals, Orthodox, Roman Catholics, Anglicans, and I'm sure a whole bunch more. What's my point? It means that each of these denominations had something that they drew a line on. Something they said, we are about this, your church is not about this. We believe this, and you don't. If you want to be a part of what we're doing, you need to be on the same page as us. And you name the topic, there's a line being drawn. Women in leadership, views on marriage, views on divorce, views on head coverings, views on spiritual gifts, 
the types of worship, end times, creation, communion, how you take communion, you name it. The list goes on. And it's interesting to note, for example, that this very passage and the the parallels in other Gospels is often used as an argument for infant baptism. And it's frequently found in baptismal liturgies. Now, to argue that uh, Jesus' words here refer in any direct way to baptism, I'd say is kind of a long shot. Um, But at the very least, I would argue that the passage may be seen as a response to one of the common arguments against the baptism in infants. And that is the argument that they shouldn't be baptized because they can have no faith or understanding on their own. Because in this story, what makes the kingdom of God theirs is their very inability to decide things for themselves. Infants aren't making big decisions. They can't get anywhere without somebody else. They can do nothing on their own. They're helpless, vulnerable, and have no abilities on their own. Another way of saying this is that there is nothing they can do on their own to inherit the kingdom of God. It's solely by God's grace. So there might be lots of arguments for and against infant baptism, which we're not going to go into, but I hope that you can at least see that the argument that infants cannot be baptized because there is something they cannot do, and we can, comes close again to Pharisee pride in their obedience and what others aren't doing. And hopefully you can see this is just a simple example of how denominations can get formed, how we can draw a line and say, we think this way, this is how it needs to be, you don't, so We're here, and you're there. And just like we saw last week, these borders, these systems, these things that happen within the church, that's why the Pharisee was understood where he was, and that's why the tax collector was seen to be way over here. There's the insiders and the outsiders. And what's more is these rules, these systems, these structures that we set up that hinder others from coming to Christ, it's not necessarily always based on understandings of Scripture. It can be far more subtle. It can be as simple as our clothing. My old church turning 108 years old, and I'm pretty sure 90% of them were there when it started, and love them. But they had a culture that when you came to church, the men were in full suits, the women were in beautiful dresses and ginormous hats, and, and you name it. And it was, for them, it was a culture, it was an understanding, it was a reverence, nothing wrong with that. But you can imagine if you're a homeless person who decides to go to church one day, and you step in, and everybody's in this highly dressed up place, how uncomfortable and unwelcome you would feel. Our liturgies, our languages that we use in church can do the exact same thing. For those who've never grown up in the church and decide to come, they sit here, and we've all been in a place where we've been in a room, and someone is speaking, and everybody else seems to understand it, and you have no idea what's going on and how uncomfortable and unwelcoming that feels. And the reality is, with regards to our, ch- our text, is churches in every city, including ours, are surrounded by people who are almost as vulnerable and incapable as the infants. For example, this very church building, by the nature of the way it was built, causes those who are disabled or in wheelchairs to be hindered from coming here. We don't have easy wheelchair access. It's difficult 
for them to enter our actual building. Other examples of people who are seen as vulnerable or incapable in our day might include those who've been unemployed for a long time, people who've never known anything but violence, those who are homeless, people without proper immigration papers, people with particular diseases, or those who speak different languages than us, those who uh, maybe are deaf or blind, right? Just those realities can be, cause us to have things that hinder them from entering into this place. And the list can go on. And to be clear, none of the churches are putting big signs and saying, you guys aren't welcome here, right? They're not doing that. But they have these kind of covert ways of creating systems and standards and practices and expectations that end up excluding or hindering them. And what's really interesting is it's not just the church that does this. We do this as individuals all the time. We do things that even hinder our own self from coming to Jesus. Any of you ever had a schedule that was so busy that it filled you up and now you're not spending time with Jesus? You ever stayed up too late on Saturday and you're so exhausted you don't think you can get up to come to church? Or maybe you tell yourself that no one will notice that you're there, so why bother? Or you get out late and you realize, I'm going to be late, so what's the point? So we do this to ourselves. And we don't invite others for reasons that we come up with that ultimately hinder others from coming to Jesus, right? We think to ourselves, well, they're not going to like me if I tell them about Jesus. Or they're going to think I'm judgmental. Or they're not going to like our church because fill in the blank. Or I just don't think they're interested. So we can see ourselves in the disciples in the story. And again, thankfully, the story that Luke tells does not have the indignation that the Gospel of Mark has. It doesn't have this scene that Jesus is just shaking his head in disappointment. We see Jesus teaching about grace in every way. And I hope that you hear that Jesus is teaching us, encouraging us, challenging us to not hinder people from coming to him. Be it a child or an infant, be it an adult, be it yourself or your friend or your neighbor or your coworker, that especially those that are seen in our culture as utterly vulnerable and incapable, that we should do all that we can to make it possible for them to come to Jesus. And ultimately what I hear, I hope that you hear is that all of us are the brephos, the infants in the story. Because although we might think we have a lot of abilities, we aren't able to do childlike things. We aren't able to do this. Ultimately, we can't do anything without God's grace. We're incapable and vulnerable. Your very breath is given to you by God. Your very being is given to you by God. Your life, your purpose is solely because of the God of the universe absolutely and completely loves you and has lavished his grace upon you. Our call, our response then, is to pause, to give thanks for this amazing love and to be aware of and change the ways that we might hinder others, including ourselves, from coming to Jesus. Um, at this time, I'd like to invite our worship team to come forward. 
And as they do, I'd like to invite you to pull out your connection card that's in your bulletin. You could flip it on the back. I just have a couple questions, a kind of a form of pondering or application um, that I'd love for you to take a moment and answer. You could do one or all three. Um, the first question is simply, in what ways have you hindered yourself from coming to Jesus in your day-to-day? Not just like, I haven't been the Sunday in a while, that's important to me, but in your day-to-day, how you go about living your life, what have you done to hinder yourselves from participating or coming to Jesus? Second question, in what ways have you hindered others from coming to Jesus? I've even heard people say, you know, I'm involved in serving on Sunday, so it feels weird to invite someone to church if I'm helping the children downstairs, right? And we even pause and go, ah, that makes sense. Sort of, not really, right? I mean, again, we create systems and things that we do that hinder people from coming to Jesus. What ways have you done that? And then number three, what can you do to change this? I would love to hear from you and your thoughts. And as you leave today, if you don't mind dropping your connection card in one of the wood boxes at any of the doors, um, that'd be fantastic. Um, I'm going to close us with a quote. This quote is from uh, St. Bonaventure on this idea of the kingdom of God that I love. It says this, How far does this reign of God reach? At this point... Our senses, our imagination, our reason, and our mind all fail. It is at as great as the length of eternity, which cannot fail nor have an end. It is as great as the width of love, which cannot be restrained. It is as high as sublimity itself, which cannot be comprehended. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we are reminded once again of your incredible Love, grace, and mercy. We are absolutely and completely in need of your love. Without you, we can do nothing. And thank you for not shaking your head at us in disappointment when we do things that probably aren't what you would hope. But instead, you lavish your grace upon us. You teach us and encourage us and challenge us to do all that we can to help others, including ourselves, come to you. So today, corporately, as friends, family, as a body, as One Life Community Church, we thank you for your love. May we share it with others. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.